Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Brandon Taylor about his new book, Make It Modern, A History of Art in the 20th Century. Brandon Taylor is Professor Emeritus of the History of Art at the University of Southampton and visiting tutor in the History and Theory of Art at the Ruskin School of Art at the University of Oxford. He's the author of numerous previous books, including Collage, The Making of Modern Art, After Constructivism, The Life Forms in Art, Modernism, Organism, Vitality, and Art Today, among others. He's also a painter himself and brings the keen insight of a practicing artist to his writing and research interests. His latest book, as I mentioned, is Make It Modern, A History of Art in the 20th Century, and it follows an expansive group of Western artists from the devastation and destruction of the First World War through the Great Depression, the devastation and destruction of the Second World War, into the rise of consumer culture, that is roughly from the 1910s to the 1960s. He creates for the reader a narrative of Western art of the modern world. Thank you, Brandon, for being on the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking to you about this book. It's nice to be here. So you wrote Make It Modern, at least in part, for people for whom modern art is in maybe many ways bewildering. Maybe we can all count ourselves in that group at one point or another. Uh, But some of the artworks you discuss have been around and been famous for more than 100 years at this point. What do you think it is about modern art that contributes to its enduringly bewildering qualities? It's an interesting word, this idea of being bewildered, because in the 20th and 21st century, we are all bewildered already by the world we live in. And I mean, I put that out as a generalization, but it seems to me that one of the features of the of the period between the First World War and the Second World War and beyond is or derives to a large extent from the very pace of change in almost every aspect of life. And so when we talk about the art of the period being bewildering, uh, I think it's um, an excellent thing that it is bewildering. And I think it, it, it corresponds or it meets those of us who are still bewildered by much of it. And uh, I regard that, therefore, as a thoroughly beneficial thing to have recognized it and to be happy and, and as it were, entranced in a way by grappling with the, with, with the scale of the bewilderment and what forms it took. Modern art, above all, is, is and was never supposed to be reassuring in the face of the world from which it came. And I wanted, in a way, to bring out some of the background against which these events in art occurred, but without, as it were, making it seem inevitable, as we find in some models of the story of modern art, in which one thing leads to another, and then another thing leads from that. And it kind of tumbles along in a kind of evolutionary way. I wanted, therefore, to make the different um, decades of the last century into an account in which successive generations tried to grapple with the 
with the extraordinary inequalities, uh, turbulences, violence, destruction, and to some extent, the optimism of the period. So in, in some instances, maybe it's that, you know, in as much as art holds a mirror up to life, the fact that life was bewildering meant that the art had to be. Well, it didn't have to be, but it chose to be. And, and mm. I think this is the quality we're looking for in, in, in a way. I don't think we should be shy of being bewildered. I think it's part of what we need to be. And if we weren't, uh, if we just sat back and let things uh, roll over us, I think it would be a sorry state of affairs. I mean, I will say that um, in regard to, let's talk about the techniques of art alone. Uh, some people now still, I mean, we're talking now a century after, after this story began, still a little bit uh, hesitant when they see a work of art consisting of bits of paper stuck on a surface or a work of art created by blotting or rubbing, you know, or tearing or, or spraying material. Um, this is still to some people a little bit aside from what they consider art should be. Now, while I'm not holding up any kind of demand that 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 art should be should be made with 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 the correct materials in the right place, I do think we're living in a time in which experiment with the with the making of art is part of the story we're trying to tell and in a way reflective of the freedom which artists gained for themselves over the period and which now, of course, um, enjoy. So in that sense, we have a material revolution in the making of art uh, in front of us. And in another way, we have a succession of extraordinary and conflicting ideas about how to respond to the technical, transport, uh, communication, um, industrialization, and other social revolutions which are taking place throughout the period. I'm very keen on this subject to just go one step further and say that the use of words ending in ISM, ism, uh, as in cubism, expressionism, surrealism, uh, this is a sad fact of our language and we're kind of stuck with these words. But I wanted very much not to write a kind of an account of one ism after another. I wanted rather to um, try and expose or lift the lid on the very great richness of the period, the kind of interplay of personal rivalry and ambition on the one hand, the the part played occasionally by the market, either rising or declining, and the um, the sheer richness of the artistic conversation that was taking place between uh, the beginning and the end of the book, roughly speaking, 1905 or, or 1910, right through to about 1960. I think people don't know in general. I mean, when I say people, I mean the, the, uh, the, the busy urban public who are visitors to exhibitions and readers of books. 
I think many people don't realize how how rich the the writings are of many of the great names of modern art. I mean, you can scarcely avoid thinking that the great figures such as um, uh, Matisse, Dali, uh, the Germans, <clears throat> the Russians, even the British from time to time, are tremendously articulate writers, provocative writers too, exploratory writers about the art of their period and what it's attempting to do. So I wanted to bring this out as well in the organization of the book. Yeah, there, there was, there's an extraordinary number of, of journals launched through the art movements of the period, um, you know, sometimes in an effort to codify one ism or another sometimes they only lasted for one issue or two but um yes it is it is useful to to think about how you know that effort at intellectualizing what what the artists were doing was a a major part of their um you know their creative output yes and and what one of the jobs for the book like this i think and for a writer like me is to is to grapple with the with the linguistic diversity in the sense of we have all of the languages of Europe and Scandinavia and South America to cope with, as well as the language we're speaking now, that of English. So this has to be rendered somehow in into one account. And in a way you can say, well, to write a history of the modern period in art in whatever it is, 300 and something pages is slightly mad. <laughs> uh, but there we are. I thought I'd have a go. Well, and and here's a question. You divided the book into sections by decade. There's the 1910s, 20s, etc. Yes. What what do you feel was gained through that approach? Did you <clears throat> did you really feel like each one has a distinct personality and a distinct set of characteristics that wind up being sort of mutually informed by the art produced within each decade? Mm. I think the answer to that, it's a very good question. I think the answer to it really is um, yes, and, yes and no, really. Um, the book is a commissioned book and, and um, in the commissioning process, there was a discussion about the shape and organisation of the book. And it was proposed to me by your colleagues in London that this might be a nice approach to divide the book into de decades. And I was uh, resistant uh, to this to begin with, uh, for reasons which you can well imagine, that, that history doesn't organise itself into decades. But uh, in the end, I said, well, let me have a look at it. And I drew multiple timelines and diagrams. And in the end, I came to think, yes, it could be done. Uh, and, you know, the decade structure is, is um, implausible to begin with. But if you look at it, you can see that there is a kind of structure already given just by pure accident of history, really. I mean, you have the armistice of the First World War in 1919. You have the onset of another World War in 1939. At least from the point of view of 1920, 1930 and 1940, I thought that it could be done that way. Uh, and so in the organisation of the book, again, with the help of literally dozens of timelines and diagrams, 
um, this is the way it came out. And uh, I'm actually quite pleased with it. So despite my original misgivings, I, I'm, I'm happy with this. It does read nicely. And it is, I mean, it is a pre-existing sort of convention of talking about culture to ascribe uh, an artist or a writer or a musician or anybody to his or her decade, you know, so-and-so. Well, I don't, yes, I don't, I don't, equally, I don't claim that um, that the artists themselves belong to a decade. I mean, mm -hmm. many of them, for obvious and good reasons, span the entire period, the very long-lived ones among them, Picasso comes to mind, um, was present in, in every one. Right. Uh, and that raises another problem because you have very often in the case of a particular artist or group of artists, you have some very startling early work and then not always, but quite often you find that the work tails off or, or people disappear or move or something happens and you lose sight of them. So we're dealing with multiple careers intersecting um, with each other and combined with that an astonishing degree of uh, phys physical and geographical movement of artists themselves as they either flee from one place to another, migrate, change country, travel and so on. So it's a very complex picture actually, which, which the full complexity of which probably is a little bit disguised. There is a, a healthy and quite helpful dose of historical and political context offered here too. Um, what what do you think that the study of art and artists and you know their migrations can tell us about society over a period of time that a purely historical or sociological approach can't do? It's not so much a question of. I don't think art telling us much about the society. I think it's more the question should be what what the society itself, if you look at it, can reveal about the art. I mean, they're part and parcel of each other. I'm not particularly concerned here or even very interested in the sociology of art, whatever that might amount to. But I am interested in the in in the fact that in the main, the artistic groups and individuals that you have here are in many cases well known to each other, following each other's work, contesting each other's ideas. Uh, you might even see many of these groupings as forming a sort of subculture within the entire larger picture of Western uh, bourgeois culture. The relationship between that, for now we're calling it a subculture, and the larger culture is a really complex one and there's no single answer to it. But one of the very striking things that does occur in the period we're looking at is of course the, the rise of totalitarianism in Russia and Germany in the 1920s and 1930s, in which process the, as it were, the permissive work of so-called modern artists within the culture, within the society, comes under heavy uh, and often uh, condemnatory um, review by the state itself. 
So in those cases, we, we have a strange and troubling history uh, whereby the, 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 the state begins to enter into direct control of the culture, which it then begins to supervise and in many cases to control. There's a very good and uh, hopefully uh, uh, not to be repeated set of cases where uh, authoritarian governments, as it were, get in the way of the free exercise of artistic imagination and expression. And I, uh, for, for, for somebody like me uh, and a project like this, it, it raises the question, what are we to say about the art produced within the confines of these authoritarian political regimes? Maybe, and some people have claimed this, it was actually modern in a different way, different uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that is more truly expressive of the society, of the modern society, in which it finds itself embedded. But uh, we in the we in the liberal, so-called liberal democracies of the West, uh, do cling, and I hope we continue to cling to the idea that uh, freedom of expression in the visual and other arts is within certain agreed and conventionally organised guidelines. A matter of free expression. But we do have within the midst of the modern period this, as it were, let's call it for, for the time being, a counter-modern tendency uh, to, to, as it were, channel artistic energies uh, into the service of the state. Yeah. <clears throat> What's one, an example of an artist um, you know, making art that was sanctioned by, say, the totalitarian regime in Russia and the Soviet Union, um, and how and how does that work into the story? Well, there are so many examples of this amongst writers and visual artists too. But let's take the example of. Alexander Rodchenko, who used to, who proved himself to be an original and energetic and actually quite brilliant member of the um, of the early discussions around what came to be called constructivism, and who uh, devoted his 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 some of his his early years to, as he put it giving up painting because it because it resonated too widely with the with the bourgeois civilization which the revolution was trying to eradicate or to change constructivists <clears throat> within his group were attempting in the early 1920s and throughout the 1920s actually to bring a kind of a kind of a compromise or a meeting of the design sensibility with the artistic sensibility to work to make art work precisely in the service of society 
Well, of course, the, the trap, you could say in hindsight, was there waiting for him in that if, if, the, if the said society itself turned in a totalitarian direction, then what on earth was going to happen to him and his program of constructivist ideas? Well, after 1932, uh, the answer is that um, once the state had really taken charge of, of, the, of the whole sector by eliminating the free, the free groups which formed themselves in the 1920s, and once they had supplied a set of slogans for the, for the, for the practice of the arts under the aegis of the state, once that had happened from 1932 onwards, then um, visual artists such as Rodchenko were faced with this dilemma in which he actually struck a certain kind of unique, almost unique compromise by continuing to take photographs, but in a kind of rather, uh, you know, convincingly kind of, uh, with, a, with a certain sort of modern look to them in the service of, in the, service of the state. But it was a very uneasy compromise, and it wasn't until the 1940s that he began to kind of really go into go go into um, disappear from view. Although he continued to paint and to perform as an artist, but many other visual artists in that situation, who had been once so original and so advanced in the, in the language of a kind of running race terminology. Um, that they they just had to kind of basically stop working, do something else, uh, reconcile themselves to not getting hold of any materials anymore, uh, not not receiving permission to exhibit, and generally um, get out of the way in favour of the painters and sculptors who the state nurtured and supported. So it's a pretty sad picture. Mm -hmm. Or they could leave. A terrible picture in many ways, and although visual artists weren't actually physically punished <clears throat> in the way that certain writers and musicians were, for some reason I'm never quite sure why, they 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 did have to, in in a sense, give way right up until the 1950s and 1960s when when Soviet Russia began to change once again, and we're not out of that period yet for obvious reasons, with the current war taking place between Russia and Ukraine, some of the official work of the period under Mr. Putin are um, actually horrific, um, quasi-totalitarian uh, monstrosities, which we should all get to know and, and also despise. Mm. So it's a, troubled, it's a troubled and complex picture. Yeah, and there are other interesting instances of of the artists of the various you know moments of moments in time over the period that your book covers the, so artists of the present at various moments how their relationship to the past changes and it, i think is particular was particularly interesting to me in the context of artists during world war 2 who had lived through world war 1 oh yes um, what would you? Uh, what insight can you shed there? Well, World War Two was um, another another tremendous upheaval in the right across the world, of course, but 
particularly in the Western nations. And perhaps the significant thing to, to remind your listeners of here is that um, it was a time also of fantastic um, physical movement of, of artists, many of them, and in most cases, away from Europe, um, especially um, Russia and Germany, also Italy and Spain, and in many cases to uh, South America or to uh, North America, North America where, where you are now, and in some cases to England, either on the way or permanently, where they stayed. But, but, but the ambition for the majority, if I'm right, was to get across the Atlantic to America. And there you have the opening of another story, which is followed in different parts of this book, whereby a new generation of European moderns, as it were, turned up in New York and other um, East Coast locations during the late 1930s and early 1940s, and, and um, entered into a set of extraordinary and fascinating relations with young American artists who were trying to find their way, as it were, in the direction of what they regarded as a genuinely American art, a kind of n not not a version of art based on European models, but an independently uh, self-generating and self-justifying American school of modern art. And that, of course, is the fascinating and rich story of American art in the late 1940s and 50s, uh, about which um, about which we, 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 we know still not everything, but um, a fair amount. I think what's been discovered now is that the period is actually much more complicated than simply uh, one generation of men and then some women who... Um, practiced kind of vigorous expressionist abstract art. There's much more going on in that period and many more of the figures that are not well known, I'm glad to say, are now coming gradually to light in different exhibitions, both in this country and in yours. So the geographical situation and the sheer movement of population among artists of the period is um, a key and, you know, let's face it, untypical situation for artists to be in. One gets the story, one gets the impression very often of an extraordinary amount of travel and disruption on a personal, um, domestic and economic level for many of these artists, shifting from one country to another, escaping one threat or being welcomed by some other group more sympathetic. And so this kind of richness of the period, as I see it, and I think can't be denied, really, is to some extent um, a real um, um, result of the, of the rich intermingling of nations and people uh, and situations throughout the Western world. So my, my last question maybe falls a little bit outside the specific focus of the book, but was something that I found myself wondering about after finishing it. You write at the very end that, quote, destabilizing the senses in order that the viewer may comprehend the world anew has been an abiding motive of much, if not most, of the art identified as modern. 
Do you think that this animating force has changed much since the 1960s, since the end of the the part of the story that your book tells? Uh, this is another very difficult question, of course, and I, 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 I understand the reason you're asking for you're asking it. Which is really how do you how do you end a book on modern art? Where do you stop, and how do you stop? Well, in one way, you have to stop because the book is a is a, is a finite thing, and you just simply have you can't go on forever. But on the other hand, um, on the other hand, I think um, it, it's a it's a fair stab at the answer to say, as I do, that um, at least by, say, sometime in the 1960s, maybe earlier, maybe later, a sort of some kind of change was taking place in the kind of texture of Western culture. I think the kind of big period of heavy industry was sort of coming to an end slowly. I think we have the beginning of these, uh, the so-called information revolution, which we are still in the middle of, or even in the early part of now, in which the, the movement of data, the movement of information with tremendous speed and and accuracy, and new methods of totalizing and organizing data suddenly came upon Western culture for the first time. And it seemed to me that um, at least with with the with the onset of what I very tentatively refer to as conceptual art, and and uh, that's a whole other book, really, and and so on. Something fundamental changed by way of a kind of clearing of the decks, a kind of a kind of beginning again, a kind of cleansing of the visual language of art, getting rid of the visual excitement of of much art in favour of information uh, in some combination with photographic imagery. This, this this really became a kind of fundamental break or gradual shift, it seemed to me, after which, uh, or with which, um, I think it became possible to refer to artistic culture as, well, modern. It would, it would have sounded a bit old-fashioned, I think, in 1970 to, for, for somebody to say, oh, well, I'm a modern artist, or he or she is a modern artist. It simply would have begun to sound archaic for whatever reason. And although it might be far-fetched to have said, as I did say, that the language itself changed in the direction of artists self-identifying as contemporary artists, uh, this, this, this word, I think, gave me a convenient phrase with which to, to mark a, a shift into another kind of language and another kind of sensibility. I may be right, I may be wrong. <laughs> well, <clears throat> the book does a, really just a marvelous job of telling a story, you know, and I think everyone who reads it, you know, will have, you know, a, a different experience the next time they go to a museum and see artwork by any any one of the artists that you talk about in the book. And I thank you again for making the time in your day to talk to me about it. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. The book again is Make It Modern, 
A History of Art in the 20th Century by Brandon Taylor. It is available now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast as well as information about this and all of our books.